there'll be several types of vehicles, several configurations, several performance of, of these vehicles. And we have to make sure that this integration is something we can do as a, as a complete picture before we start putting individual vehicles or, or solutions into operation. Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we are Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Sean, what are we going to cover this episode? Well, James, we're taking the next step in urban air mobility. Dr. PK of NASA gave us a great intro and uh, about NASA's research. Kate Frazier of Uber Elevate told us about their urban air mobility intermodal transportation dreams. And now we're going to talk hardcore airframes. We're going to find out if we'll be flying modified manned aircraft, something designed from the ground up, or some type of hybrid that's in between. Okay, well, that's great because we all know that an airworthy airframe is one of the bigger challenges for our personal drone sky taxis to get them flying. And I'm going to bet the only way that Uber makes this profitable is if they go with a purposely designed drone sky taxi. I mean, I just don't see the cost savings if they just unman a manned helicopter. And I'll bet you they go with electric propulsion also. Massive potential cost savings and noise reduction if, and this is an absolutely massive if, they can get their design past the FAA. I am definitely with you on the big if. I mean, not only are we talking about getting the FAA to approve an unmanned passenger aircraft that is electric, but we're introducing new engines, new air traffic management methods, potentially drone domes. Uh, in every neighborhood. And and that's just a lot to digest for the FAA over the next two, five, 10, 15, 20 years. Okay, I agree. But fortunately, we have just the man that will answer all these questions for us. Uh, Louis Valentini, uh, Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Engineering Manager at Embraer, is with us all the way from Brazil. Louis has not one but two degrees from Purdue, but I'm not sure even the Purdue Engineering Department could prepare for the challenge of designing not just electric flying taxis, but electric autonomous drone flying taxis. Lewis, it is great to have you on the show. It's great to have you here today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So great to be here, guys. Um, I did study at Purdue then. It was a great time. And after that, I went back to Brazil and since then worked on several of Embraer projects, um, mostly working with aerodynamics or flying qualities, uh, ice accretion, wind tunnel testing, flight testing, stuff like that on several of the modifications on existing airplanes that we did and also on brand new designs. Um, then most recently, Embraer turned its way, um, its attention to this urban mobility market. In this urban mobility market, we see a big opportunity of developing a vehicle that will fit a mission that will really change the way we move around cities. So that's when I started looking more into these electric uh, VTOL vehicles. All right. So what are the kind of designs you're looking at for Uber Elevate? I mean, Bell's doing a variant of their tilt rotor. Ape Karen's doing a butterfly that looks like a tilt rotor. Uh, Lilium in Germany is creating a whole bunch of buzz with their unique design. What makes your design unique? 
Yeah. So like you said, the, the first thing you notice in, in this VTOL space is that there's really uh, not an agreement, at least yet, on what a good configuration or the, an ideal configuration is for this space, right? And, and it really depends a lot on the mission that you're trying to accomplish with it. And so we went to an, a really extensive study of looking into several configurations. Uh, there has been a lot of history of these uh, VTOL configurations in the past. And so we really did a lot of work trying to study what would be most adequate for the mission that we're trying to accomplish. And we ended up choosing a lift plus cruise configuration. So it lift has- Lift plus cruise, okay. That's right. So it doesn't have uh, any tilting mechanisms as other- Ah, uh, okay. As other configurations you mentioned. And we call it lift plus cruise. It's a, it's a, a common term for it because it separates the rotors that are used for lift and hover flight from the rotors that we use in cruise flight and horizontal flight. And one good benefit of doing that is that you have, aside from the propellers themselves, obviously no moving parts on the aircraft. And that simplifies it, makes it more robust. So, so you're not, you know, like the tilt rotor, uh, you're not tilting the rotor. So you've got rotors that, um, that lift the aircraft up and then you got separate set of rotors that propel it forward. Did I get that right? That's correct. And so there is a Ooh, wing. That political science, yeah. That's it. And so once you develop uh, horizontal speed, then the lift uh, shifts from the rotors to the wings. So you turn off the lift rotors and then move on. And the rest of the flight uh, as a regular airplane, so on wings and with a pusher propeller or, or tractor, you can be uh, different configurations. Also, in our case, they're pusher propellers. And when you get to the destination, then you transition back to hover flight by turning on the rotors, uh, decreasing the speed, and shifting back to, to hover flight. Well, aren't you carrying a lot of drag when you're in vertical flight and when you're no longer using the the engines you needed for horizontal flight? That's exactly right. So that's the penalty of this configuration. Okay. I mean, you get the benefit from for being simpler. I mean, it's hard to really say that these uh, vehicles are simple. I mean, they have several rotors. I mean, fly-by-wire, flight controls, stuff like that. But they are simpler in the sense that there are no tilting mechanisms. Uh, and the, the counter for that is that you have to pay the penalty of drag and cruise. So that's why I, I meant that the mission really makes a, a lot of difference for the choice of the configuration, because in shorter missions, as is the case for urban mobility, uh, we think that this combination of higher drag penalty, but more robust configuration is really the best choice to go. So what is shorter? Is that two miles, five miles, 50 miles? But where, where, where do you think the the trade-off is between uh, you know a tilt rotor type design and your type. Design yeah, so in the tens of miles, the way we see it, it still makes sense to be on the lift plus cruise configuration. I mean, if you go to uh, say intercity missions uh, when maybe you're moving to the hundreds of miles, then uh, the choices might okay. be different. You know, James is asking a lot of really good questions for a non-engineer. <laughs> really I, good I, questions. I slept on a holiday in last night. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So I, I just want to follow up on the energy because we we talked a lot about that over the last couple of days within the um, Uber Elevate uh, Symposium sure. about how do you how 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 are you going to make sure that you're able to get to where you need to go uh, with um, some of the limitations we have in battery technology today. Yeah. How are you going to get that range with, with batteries? Exactly. Yeah, so, so that's the other thing. And so uh, that's the other thing that the mission and the configuration really go into, right? So in, in this shorter configuration, this shorter emissions, I mean, uh, we think that the electric fully battery powered uh, system is the best option. 
this saves you, again, in complexity from having a hybrid system, which could be, you know, uh, coming using energy from several other sources, but you'd need another part of a system to fit in on the electric propulsion. So we think that the battery powered only makes it simpler uh, and it still allows us to have the range that we need for these urban missions. So your design, let me make sure I got that right, is completely battery powered. That's I mean, correct. No, no conventional fuel engine or anything like that. Wow. That's right. And so that also has some benefits in terms of the infrastructure that we use on the ground. So uh, if you carry fossil fuels to, say, rooftops, then you need to have other systems on the ground for uh, oh, okay. to I receive that aircraft. And if you're fully battery powered, then there's some simplifications you can do on that also. So how, how does charging work? I mean, do you have to, so you fly from downtown Manhattan out to whatever, JFK. Mm -hmm. uh, does it, your aircraft have to sit on the ground for like 10 hours and recharge when it's at, or how, how do you do that? No, and that's uh, something we've been asking a lot from the, the battery manufacturers that we want batteries that in addition to have very good energy density, they also allow us to charge them quickly. Uh, and, and that's what uh, really makes the battery difficult to uh, to develop because then we need at the same time high energy density and high power density. But one of the things we can do on the aircraft design to, to help with that is to size it in such a way that you don't use the full battery uh, energy in only one mission. So you don't have to charge it up, uh, you know, 100 percent or, you know, uh, not 100 maybe, but 80% of the charge every time you fly. And so if we reduce the amount of energy you have to put in, then we can also speed up the time on the ground. Okay, so you don't envision, you know, landing at JFK and, and you know, staying charged for hours, nor do you envision some robot coming out and swapping the battery out for a fresh one, so... No, no battery swapping. Battery swapping is uh, another complexity. It may seem uh, simple, but it would need um, a lot of a lot of infrastructure to deal with. Um, it's uh, you know on these aircraft we're talking uh, it's hundreds of pounds of batteries uh, in some cases, so it's uh, really not simple to swap. We really believe on the charging, and you have to get the energy there. But but it's uh, still the best option in our view. So, okay, so very very polite answer, but you're saying I asked a political science question, then yeah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's for just being nice. well, let, let's just say so. So, for example, Kate Frazier with Uber mentioned a crawl, walk, run approach to urban air mobility, where you know they'd start manned aircraft. Since we're using Manhattan as example here, go optionally manned and then end up with uh, an unmanned vehicle eventually. How challenging it is it to design to those requirements? And and will Embraer X just skip the manned component and and just go optionally manned? I mean, unmanned, I should say. No, we definitely agree with the evolution uh, that that you mentioned um, that that Kate stated. Uh, we, you know, other people see it the same way, but we definitely see an evolution as the way to go. In this case, uh, there's a lot to be proven, not only on the vehicle side, but also in the integration of the vehicle into the ecosystem as it moves from a piloted vehicle to an unmanned vehicle. So. 
Uh, we see that the way to guarantee that all of the technologies and all of the integration is really there is to gradually take the functions out of the pilot's hand and introduce them to the vehicle, but making sure that we still have the pilot and systems to monitor that performance. So then let me follow up because Embraer has this broad global scope that very others would love to be able to emulate, but you have already got it in, in your 50 years of history there at Embraer. What are some of the challenges that you may have in other countries that Ooh, um, good question? Yeah, that 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 you're looking at that that we're unaware of. Yeah, so that's interesting to think of because um, although we focus much of that talk of urban mobility or or a lot of aviation really in 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 the U.S., uh, we we really don't think of it as uh, the only market that that you know mm -hmm. we're interested in. Uh, and so we are currently, uh, you know, of course, we're from Brazil, so we talk a lot uh, with Brazilian authorities, certification uh, uh, authorities in Brazil, but also government authorities. And we have been extending that to EASA in Europe, for mm -hmm. example, right? to um, to really start now looking into what is the path for us to make this integration into other places of the world viable too. So it's not something that is really near term but we want to start building it from now since uh, we see that there's a long way to go. What are some of those other countries that have been receptive? So there is a lot of work uh, going on in, in Europe uh, to it. Um, uh, we've So we've talked to, again, both EASA and countries there. Uh, recently, Uber announced uh, Melbourne as a city for the Uber Elevate um, uh, network to start with. And so, so we're, since we're partners in that, we're also mm -hmm. looking into that region uh, so those I, I would mention as as being uh, main ones now. We'll, we'll deal, drill more into the FAA side of this, but are all of these countries, so you mentioned Brazil, the United States, Australia, some of your European partners. EU. None of these guys are going ballistic over over batteries and, and electric propulsion. I mean, are, are you meeting more resistance in certain countries than others, or is it they all – Get on the is there an openness that it sounds as if there's an openness to something that maybe 10 years ago um, aviation authorities would have been very uncomfortable with? I mean, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft just they just don't exist at the moment. Yeah, that's right. So something that is has been or certified. It's true. And so we've been over the years um, introducing technology that has already put us in a path of adjusting certification requirements uh, for vehicles, even if they're not the electric VTOL uh, case, right? So for example, uh, on our latest, uh, latest, latest airplanes, when we have the fly-by-wire technology, we, we had to do adjustments to certification requirements to certify these aircraft with these types of technologies. So it's, it, these adjustments are already part of our certification process every time we put a new uh, vehicle or airplane out. And, and be it that in this case, it's a larger adjustment. I mean, there's several more requirements that have to be adapted to the vertical uh, takeoff and landing vehicles and the electric propulsion. But we do see uh, a very open um a very open space uh, and authority is very willing to participate in this discussion early on, not only in the U.S., but also uh, in other countries. And and so we're striking those conversations early on is really the way that we think we're going to build together an environment to certify these vehicles. 
Very, very good. So we have to take a short break here uh, to hear from our sponsor. But when we get back, let's drill down on the policy and technical challenges of an intermodal drone sky taxi service. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rody and Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rody and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. All right, and welcome back. Okay, Lewis, now that we know the basics, and, and you explained that wonderfully in political science terms, uh, you know what I'm going to ask next because it is sort of a political science question, and it's it, the exact question that we asked Uber Elevate. How on earth are you going to get drone sky taxis past the FAA? Good Long question. pause. Okay. Good question. Uh, so, yeah. Right. So that, that takes a... Some thought to answer it. A lifetime? No, not a lifetime. <laughs> Shorter uh, than that. Shoot, we one, only have 15 Not minutes. even one no. podcast. No. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. So, so that's one of the things that um, being uh, having the history that Embraer has really helps. I mean, we've, we've done uh, several projects in the past, uh, and many of them have been uh, innovative at their own time. Uh, and, and so we have been... We have experience of doing this type of, of conversation and discussion and development with the certification authorities. Again, not only the FAA. And, and there's really a lot of caution to receive this new technology into aviation. Aviation has really greatly benefited from having the developments over the last decades uh, and that goes in terms of safety on reliability. I mean, today we, you know, you go to the airport, you know, your plane is going to take off, it's going to get you to where you need. So it, it has developed into a really consistent operation over the years. And we really want to make sure that stays that way, even with the introduction of this new technology. But as we mentioned a little bit ago, there is a, a willingness from the certification authorities to enter in these discussions and to do that quickly so we have time to really see the whole picture and, again, look at the vehicles as they are and their systems, but also how they will connect to so the environment. In other words, what you're saying, you're, you're feeling comfortable that the FAA and other certification authorities are talking in conceptual terms about what they would accept while you're still designing what what is a conceptual aircraft. So they're not asking for hard answers yet. So right? I would say we have passed this conceptual discussion. I mean, we've okay. had it. I mean, it's good to have that. So you at least establish a common ground for discussion. But for now, we are already discussing more concrete terms. So, so for example, uh, what certification basis are we going to use? So these VTOL vehicles, they're not really um, Part 27 vehicles. Uh, they're not vertical flight vehicles purely, and they're not uh, horizontal flight uh, airplanes, fixed wing airplanes. So they're not Part 23 vehicles either. Hmm. And so we, we've been discussing a mix of these two certification bases to create one VTOL certification base. And again, that's going on in the U.S. That's and other countries. Is there a similar manned aircraft design that's been commercially produced? I, 
Is there anything out I there? I mean, so. I think maybe the V-22, maybe no, that, way back. that would fit under rotary wing. Right. You know, complete. And it was military, so True. You know, we, we self-certify ours. Yeah, so there have been uh, only a very few, um, a very small number of aircraft that, that have gone through the, the civil certification process. I mean, it's really rare, and we've seen uh, like a ton of projects now going on. Uh, so I think now is the time when we really see a good push for creating a basis, both of requirement, but regulations in general for these vehicles. So then let me follow up. What kind of um, when we're talking about electric vehicles as well as batteries and 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 so forth, which is almost foreign to aviation authorities all over the world. How how do you approach that? Is that is that something that is separate in these conversations or is it a part of the larger is it a larger in the larger context? No, it's it's a really dedicated discussion. I mean we we have to look at the vehicle uh, as an airframe uh, to make sure that it has, for example, adequate flying qualities, that it has adequate mm -hmm. performance, right. it'll be able to handle failures of systems and things like that. But then you also have a lot of effort that is put on to the specific systems. So in this case, the batteries will really receive a lot of attention as to uh, us making sure that we really understand how they work. I mean, the, the, the chemistry of it is not simple. Uh, the way right. that they generate electricity is something that we really have to have a good understanding of it, both of what would be expected in normal operation, but also when it, something goes wrong in the battery, how does it happen? What's mm -hmm. the consequence? I mean, right. is it a thermal runaway or right. is it an overpower, underpower? Right. So we have to really be able to to uh, have a good understanding on those and insert that in the design and on the certification. And process. you're using a totally new propulsion system as well. It's true. The benefit of it, though, in this case, is that in terms of propulsion, we have some simplifications with, with respect to previous systems. So the electric motors are really, really much simpler than combustion, internal combustion engines. And so we that's get a benefit a, from that's that. That's a good point. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, batteries and you know, how kinda sounds like we, dangerous they are. Kind of sounds like Elon Musk tons here. Tons of jet yeah, fuel yeah. is pretty dangerous, too. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm hearing you. But I, I'm also thinking in the back of my mind, I know how the FAA airworthiness works. Um, you know, you can run the design pass and then they're going to ask you for thousands of hours of test data. Where on earth are you going to get thousands of hours of test data on these batteries, on these engines? I mean, are they going to go to performance-based standards? Are they going to let you sim stimu simulate this on the computer? How are you going to do that? Yeah, so that's that's a great question because I, I, that's really one of uh, the significant limitations we have. And there's not really um, a way to produce from one day to the other, you know, a history of operational data on, right. on which much of the certification rules are based on, right? Right, true. So we really have to get together as an industry, together with the certification authorities, to create that base of data and of understanding to allow us to, you know, make sure that these vehicles are safe uh, and adequate for the missions that they're designed to. Okay. Well, well that's, that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that just, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. But honestly, you know, the FAA is 
is is one where I mean, to date, I mean, you you've got to certify an electric passenger drone. I mean, that's what you're working toward, and that that seems like a huge tall order for the FAA. There's a there's a lot of components in well, that. But let's not forget the other benefit. Now, if Lewis is successful in getting them to adopt large batteries for uh, drone sky taxis, maybe you'll get us to put lithium ion batteries back into our luggage check luggage again. Is that is <laughs> oh, <possible? gosh. laughs> Wow, we've really gone into the ditch here. Yes. So, Louise, can you tell us how important is public acceptance? So, public acceptance is really crucial to um, how these vehicles are really going to fit in in our lives. Uh, there's still a lot to be proven uh, about their their viability uh, and, and their value, really, to people uh, in these urban environments. And so... We mentioned uh, crawl, walk, and run, and and these evolution of the operation. We we at Embraer X tend we we look at it as developing the public acceptance as we go along in the developing of the vehicles and the operation. So we really intend to use these faces to show to everybody, and not only users but communities where these vehicles will be operated, show that these are vehicles that can really fit into their daily lives in a way that brings value but doesn't burden the people that are around or using these vehicles in day-to-day. Okay, so Louise, do you see other international markets for the electric vehicle takeoff and landing aircraft? Like the military, Offshore oil, something like that. Coast Guard. Yeah. You know, interior department. Yeah. So that's something that we we look at uh, because uh, really, like we've said, having the passenger drones over urban environments uh, is really uh, challenging and, and it's really a large step to take. So so the way we look at other markets uh, is that there are some other interesting ways that we can start putting these vehicles into practice. And that goes back to your, your last question about operational data on which to, to base our certification. So we can build some of this in other markets uh, at the same time that that we can get some revenue also as we develop these vehicles. And these other markets, so you mentioned defense, this is one that has uh, specific certification requirements. In some senses, we don't have to go all the length that we do in civil certification. And so those are interesting paths for us to really take these vehicles to another maturity level as we progress towards the urban mobility uh, with the passengers on board. That's a great answer. Okay. I'm going to ask you the, the, the big wrap-up question here. Out of all the big challenges that we've been talking about, what is your biggest challenge to making this a reality? Yeah, so it, it's funny to say that it, as much as we talk about the batteries and, you know, the electric propulsion, the vertical takeoff, and, and those are really great challenges, uh, and, and, and we don't even have, the, you know, the solutions for all of it. But despite of that, I, I think the, the biggest challenge here is to make sure that we integrate these vehicles with the airspace, the airspace and with the other vehicles that will be flying around. I mean, hmm. there'll be several types of vehicles, several configurations, several performance of, of these vehicles. Uh, and so they'll be coexisting in these environments. And we have to make sure that this integration is something we can do uh, and, and we can do as a, as a complete picture before we start putting individual 
vehicles or, or solutions into operation in a way that they don't fit I, with each other. I did not expect that answer. No, not that. Fortunately for our answer. listeners, we are bringing Karen DeMeo in from Aeros, GE Aerospace to talk exactly that question, traffic management for urban air mobility, because I think she's going to tell us that uh, you know, exactly what you said, which is, uh, you know, we're, we've got urban um, unmanned traffic management for small drones under 55 pounds, under 400 feet. We're working that. Uh, we've obviously got man traffic management, and I know uh, you know Kate is talking about you know starting off with purely manned helicopters right from Uber. first. Yeah, yeah. Boy, mixing the Uber two, copter. and particularly as you as you look into what is probably going to be the most popular route is to go from the middle of a city to an airport, mixing into heavily trafficked air traffic. That's a, that's a really good point. Louise, that is a great answer. Thank you so much for giving us a peek into the future of where everyone has access to a flying car. Yeah, great. Thank you. It was great to be here. Well, folks, this concludes episode 15 of our Urban Air Mobility Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat series. I'd like to thank our guest, Louise Valentini of Embraer X, and wish him the very best. Great. Thank you. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems, Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.